1: Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us again on the Ducks Unlimited podcast. We have in the past talked about wetland conservation programs in various parts of the country. Today, we're going to be visiting with someone in the Atlantic Flyway to talk about some of the wetland conservation efforts that have been in place for many years uh, out there. We received some input from our listeners over the past few months, and one of those comments was like, hey, let's hear some more about some things that are going on in the Atlantic Flyway. So, this episode is in response to that comment, and we always appreciate that comment. So, specifically today, we're going to be talking about something known as the 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 Ace Basin project there may be other names for it and i'm going to let our guest explain all the details of that but it represents some fairly significant wetland restoration wetland conservation efforts that have occurred in coastal south carolina to help us with this con- conversation i'm going to welcome in dean Harrigal. A, in his current position, he is a consulting wildlife biologist for Folk Land Management, and he is retired from the South, Car- Sarah, South Carolina Department of Natural Resources. I think he wore very many hats in that, in that agency, and so I'm going to let him tell us more about that. But Dean, welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast.
3: Oh, thank you. Thank you.
1: Let's do start with a brief intro of you and your sort of personal bio, professional bio. You've, uh, as I said, you're retired from South Carolina DNR. So, uh, to to most people, they will interpret that as meaning you have a few years under your belt. So tell us, uh, tell us just thumbnail sketch <laughs> about your your travels in this field.
3: Yeah. Uh, well, first and foremost, I'm a Clemson man. Not once, but twice, BS and MS from Clemson University. I'm a native South Carolinian. I grew up in Aiken County along the Savannah River. Um, I grew up with a fishing rod in one hand and a shotgun in the other and with parents who took their children to field. Um, after I finished my master's degree, I went to work for a small sporting plantation here in the Ace Basin uh, managing habitat where I learned how to get my boots muddy and my hands dirty and uh, spent time managing habitat there and then transitioned over to state employment around 1990 and spent a full career there for 28 years doing various things for SCDNR. The last 25 years and the most enjoyable uh, were NDA space and managing wildlife habitat, working with waterfowl uh, management for our state, so did a lot of lot of things, dealt a little bit with alligators, some with white tailed deer, but most of the time I enjoy working with habitat and especially wetland
1: habitat. Well, it sounds like like you have tons of experience and you're exactly the right person for this conversation. You and I had you know first got acquainted last year as we were working on a particular uh, an an article, an article that actually appeared in the Wildlife Society Bulletin. It was a, a professional journal. And it was an article that was highlighting the importance of private lands in wetland conservation for waterfowl all across North America. We had several vignettes within that article related to some key wetland restoration conservation efforts across North America. One of those, under one of the particular topics related to a lot of the Very impactful work that has occurred in coastal South Carolina in this Ace Basin. And so naturally, you're the person we wanted to have tell us more about that. Uh, As we've alluded to in other, uh, other episodes, conservation for waterfowl, whether we're talking about grasslands or wetlands, takes place on on public land, on our state and federal properties, as well as private land, we simply cannot support waterfowl populations on public land alone. We have to work on private land in order to make this big engine that is waterfowl populations and waterfowl population management turn. Um, and so that's where some of the work uh, that we're going to talk about in coastal South, South Carolina comes uh, comes to play. So let's just start. We're, I said we're going to talk about the Ace Basin Partnership, or the ACE Basin Project, or whatever other names we want to we want to assign to it, or that there might be for it, but ACE Basin—that's A C E Basin. Dean, let's just start off and tell us what ACE stands for. ACE
3: stands for the Ashipu, Cumbie, and Edisto Rivers, uh, which are th- three rivers that empty into the St. Helena Sound and create. The Basin, which is the large watershed that drains a good chunk of coastal South Carolina between Charleston and Savannah, you know the the three rivers are tidal rivers, which means that the tide comes and goes up up and down the rivers with a layer of fresh water riding on top of the salt water uh, wedge that moves up and down the river, which creates a really unique situation. For managing habitat, uh, historically in the colonial days, wetlands in the a space and in this tidewater region were converted from their original habitats, which was either tidal freshwater swamps or tidal freshwater marshes, into agricultural land, where rice was the principal commodity grown during the colonial through the Civil War era. And then after the Civil War, or the war between the states, however you want to call it, uh, these things fell in disrepair, and they were purchased by uh, rich northern industrialists uh, as winter recreational retreats because they provided good
1: hunting opportunities. What a lot of people don't realize, probably a lot of people don't realize, is that rice in North America first came about in South Carolina, at least as, as I understand it. You can correct me if that's not technically accurate, but that's— You're me.
3: correct, yes.
1: And, and so you know, these days, nowadays, rice is grown in Mississippi, Arkansas, Missouri, Louisiana, Texas, California. That's where the majority of the production occurs. There is, I understand, some— Maybe it's a reemergence of custom rice varieties in South Carolina. Is that right? There was a, a rice variety called Carolina Gold
3: that made these people, made these planters incredibly wealthy. And there's been some emergence in what I would call niche farming, you know, boutique crops of, of redeveloping and re-commercializing this rice for sale in a small scale fashion. You know, it's it, the lands in the lower Midwest, the Mississippi alluvial valley are more suited to heavy duty agricultural equipment than, than I, than the coastal lands here in South Carolina. So people are planting it on, you know, tens of acres and hundreds of acres, you know, boutique marketing it versus the whole, the large scale that y'all have out in that part of the world. Um, and, you know, rice was king. Some of the richest people in North America and in, 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 in the early colonial period were from South Carolina, Georgetown and Charleston. They were built upon the, the rice economy.
1: So we have, the, we have the rivers emptying into the estuary here, and so we have the coastal marsh as part of this important region. But the Ace Basin, uh, as, it's, as it's known, actually extends quite a bit inland, and it encompasses some other uh, vegetation communities, uh, the waterfowl habitat types. Tell us about those.
3: You know, we have the coastal areas that are that are really focused, but all of these riverine systems – um, the Cumbie, the Etosso, the, the, the Ashy Poo—they have tidal freshwater swamps. They have the forested wetlands. All of those things are very important for waterfowl and all the other species that utilize that type of habitat. Everything from Mississippi kites to Prothonotary warblers, um, wild turkeys—you know. So what you have in and the protection of this big landscape is is a good chunk of of an ecosystem that is protected along the river corridors extending down to the coastal areas so you know it's a landscape scale it's it's not a duck pond here or a hardwood swamp there it's the blending of the two together in its In its transition from the uplands into the salt marsh, which is another part of the basin, which is very, very important, also. And you know, if you're a duck from a bird, I always look at it from a a, you know bird's eye view. You know, one ninety acre pond in a wintering situation doesn't generally provide everything you need. But if you got ten times that or twenty times that, there's a there's a lot out there that they can utilize. And if something isn't quite right in one area, it could be right in the other. You know, nature is never 100% consistent in all places all the time.
1: And that's what, Dean, that's what makes this situation, uh, the history, the legacy of conservation in the Ace Basin so um, so magnificent, you might even say, is the scale at which it has occurred. When you go back... you. Wind the clock back far enough, there are places all across the continent that would look like the area that we're talking about now before uh, we, as humans, had the impact on it that we we naturally do. But what's different about this Ace Basin region is the the degree to which so much of that habitat, as it occurred, sort of pre-colonial times, um, has been has been kept intact. But hey, this is the Ducks Unlimited podcast. Talk to us a bit, for those that may not be familiar with that South Atlantic region, what are the most important, most common waterfowl that you see in that area using those habitats in that region?
3: You know, of course, wood ducks are a large portion of of our waterfowl utilization in NDA basin, and, and that concentrates on the hardwood swamp, you know, the, the river corridors there. You've got a lot of potential natural habitat flooded during the wintertime in, in these hardwood swamps and forested wetlands out in out in the open marsh, the lower regions uh, of the ace, green winged teal, gadwall, blue wings, wigeon, pintail, um s- some mallards, what I would call the traditional puddle duck species utilizing the, the managed wetland complexes and the old rice fields. You get further out into the pure tidal marsh and the open sound, um you see some of the diver species, bufflehead, canvasbacks, um, redheads. We do the, the scalp species, mainly lesser scalp. We do see some of the true sea ducks out in the St. Helena sound from time to time. So, you know, you can have a wide variety of birds present at any given time. Um, during the winter, bread and butter bird for for most hunters are green winged teal and wood ducks. You know
1: what about black bellies? Have black bellied whistling ducks made it up? Made it to South Carolina? Black bellied
3: whistling ducks are here. You know, uh, <laughs> one of the first first sightings in South Carolina was actually I made it in nineteen ninety four at the Donnelly Wildlife Management Area.
1: And my goodness,
3: yeah, that's a, you. I, I'm I'm smiling right now because that was like the <laughs> last thing I, I thought I would see. And they have pioneered up here um, in, in fairly respectable numbers. You do not – they're around during the summertime. Uh, we saw a bunch just the other evening. And, uh, you know, we've done some research on them. And uh, the populations kind of move up and down – uh the coast. We think what happens is black be- black bellies make a regional migration. They're here during spring and summer. They arrive late. Um they they breed, they hang around when a cold snap hits in early November, they they go south. We did a pretty interesting banding project when I was with DNR where we hung color bands from half a dozen different states um on the birds. And um they went everywhere, everywhere we had birds that our color was blue. We had birds show up in New Jersey with no kidding no kidding. The first rocket net shot we made on the Savannah National Wildlife Refuge. we caught a bird that had been banded in Louisiana. And then we had birds that were, I mean, they were all over the map. And when I told my wife about it, she said that just proves they're about as crazy as they look.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 hey, they have continued to prove that true. They are all over the place. They are in urban settings. They are in uh, rural settings. Uh, there's big Pop- big populations in New Orleans there's some here in Memphis they are just all over the place and and their their range expansion continues they're really a, a, a remarkable story
3: it, it's very interesting in uh, but you know one thing here in South Carolina you do they leave just as hunting season starts and so so you know if you talk to people in Georgia they'll see them pass through and it seems like everybody goes to Central Florida to winter you know, before they disperse back, at least on on the South Atlantic coast. They're a hoot.
1: Yeah, well, we're definitely going to have to talk more about those on a future episode. But uh, let's get back to the Ace Basin. The South Atlantic is, of course, a really important area, the Ace Basin in particular, for Ducks Unlimited and a lot of the conservation work that we do there. We have a field office in, uh, I believe it's in North Charleston. South Carolina, there. Um, I've actually never been to our field office. I've spent very little time in that in that region. Uh, something I need to I need to correct. But um, I, I mentioned the scale uh, at which this ecosystem land that this ecosystem conservation you might even say in the ace basin has occurred and again it's not by coincidence so I think the history of how this came about is really important a lot of folks will not know about but they will find it find it interesting so let's turn back the clock a little and just let you describe how that came about who were the people that were involved in this what caused them to to invest in this conservation and we're not talking just about restoration or enhancement we're talking about the protection perpetual protection set aside uh the key you know large tracts of land for uh, for for conservation benefits tell us about how that story unfolded
3: it, a very interesting story of course it all started on a continental scale with the North American waterfowl management plan. That was the big blueprint that put everything out on the table. 1986, it was, it was ugly for waterfowl populations. And that's when the U.S. and Canada, you know, uh, and, and Mexico finally got together with U.S. driving. You know, starting it and say, what can we do? How do we do it? And you know, the goal is to restore our wetland, our waterfowl populations. Well, habitat's the key. How do you, re- how do you, re- how do you get habitat? Well, you got to restore it and protect it. So, from the North American Waterfowl Management Plan blueprint, of course, there were there were areas picked out. You know, there's the Mississippi Alluvial Valley of there's the south there there's atlantic flyway and we were in you know, south carolina was part of the atlantic coast joint venture the joint ventures were the regional the big regional projects and then within the regional coordination there were individual projects called focus areas and some some of our our some of our administrators and and field biologists what where are the important areas in individual states? I'm sure that the, that was the question that was asked. Yeah. You know, yeah. Where are the, based upon your knowledge, where are, well, in South Carolina, two obvious, two major obvious areas was the Santee Delta and Winyall Bay region north of Charleston and the Ace Basin region south of Ch- Charleston. And they became focus areas under the joint, the um, Atlantic Flyway um, joint venture, and that's how it all got started.
1: Dean, I also wanted you to talk about, and maybe you're going to get into this, the, the, the conservation ethic that developed even prior to the North American Waterfowl Management Plan. You're absolutely right that on a continental scale with respect to waterfowl populations, that was a pivotal moment uh, in contemporary conservation. But uh, but wasn't there some work, sort of a, a an emerging conservation ethic in that region that that came about prior to all that?
3: The big the big thing in the Ace because of we had the the, the rice planters had a very strong conservation ethic because they had to live and make money off the land, and when rice went out, and the northern industrialists. And I'm talking about people like Baruch, uh, Gaylord Donnelly, you know. And, and in the early part of the 20th century, these guys didn't – these guys recognized this was a good place to spend the winter. So they, they started purchasing these large blocks of land for their recreational interests. And they would – They would get on the train in New York or Philadelphia overnight down here to the low country and and spend their time hunting ducks in the morning, hunting quail in the afternoon, and enjoying the warm sunshine in between. And they protected these pieces of property with quite a plum. They were proud of them. And that ethic was just passed along you know they managed the forest they did some agriculture but the wetlands were something to enjoy um not something to drain and fill and what happened with the north american waterfowl management plan it formalized everybody's ideas somebody wrote it old uh, wrote it all down why are we protecting these places you know and, and why do you why do you hold on to a 5000 acre piece of property that's expensive to maintain because it's really important to me. And that importance was just passed along. And when the North American plan, it kind of codified everybody's feelings. You know, this is this is why we do it. And what Naewomp did uh in the in the focus area concept was encourage local partnerships, which was very important to getting it going. You know, the states can't can't protect and manage it all. The feds can't protect it and manage it all. The private landowners they can't protect and manage it at all. And so, the focus area concept uh, got partners to the table. Sometimes disparate partners. Another key thing that came along in the large scale protection of, of this landscape was the conservation easement tool, which is to me the most important tool of the latter 20th century and through, through today's times of protecting land on a landscape scale. And so when the, the partnerships were put together, the feds like to hang cool names on things, you know, the task force. So we created the A Space and Task Force and the original members were the organization I worked for, which was that time South Carolina Wildlife and Marine Resources Department, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, the Nature Conservancy, Ducks and Lemon and Private Landowners. Those were the original partners and private landowners were important because they were the people who want to know what was going to happen to their land if all these other folks showed up you know i always found ducks and tnc to be very interesting because you look across the table and the the tnc folks are looking at ducks unlimited y'all not y'all not anything but a bunch of duck hunters <laughs> and the and, and and the and the ducks unlimited people Looking across the table, y'all are nothing but but a bunch of tree huggers. Yeah. Well, what do duck hunters and tree huggers have in common? The dirt.
1: That's right. There is still some commonality even among those groups, between those groups. Yeah. Absolutely. And and believe it or
3: not, I have met a lot of my career, a lot of very strong conservationists who are members of both.
1: And Absolutely. they see
3: it. Yeah. You know? And so that diverse partnership created a lot of thinking and a lot of talking and a lot of saying, how can we take care, take advantage of all the opportunities out there?
0: You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com.
2: United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside.
1: Dean, it's not as though... You know, the The idea of, of partnerships and working together was completely foreign. I'm sure there was some level of partnership that was occurring prior to that, but as you mentioned, the North American Waterfowl Management Plan really provided impetus for that and said, and also gave that, uh, provided that common and articulation of that common uh, goal, you know, and that that they could all folks could all get behind and 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 collectively move forward. And so we see that all across the country where the North American Waterfowl Management Plan and the continental goals, the regional goals, provides that galvanizing force for all these different partnerships. And we've actually seen that model uh, replicated through, uh, again, across the country, across the continent for other conservation purposes. Again, just demonstrating the value of that type of framework.
3: Yeah, and, you know, I'll put it in Clemson terms for you. It's all in, you know.
1: It's Just gonna get too
3: simple. carried away now. Oh man, I got the floor. <laughs> <laughs> <That's> <laughs> but 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 you know, and it was a way for to get these different groups to the table. And and in the in in the ace basin where we've had such great success, yeah, you, you know, It has been the Fish and Wildlife Service. It has been DNR doing their roles, but it has been the private landowners and the NGOs providing that bridge and providing options for landowners like conservation easements that will help them protect their land for prosperity. It has been... You know, DNR and, and the Fish and Wildlife Service stepping in to fill gaps. If, if, if there's a, one of our goals in the X Basin Project was to provide, you know, protection to key pieces of property that provide public access and, and the, the Fish and Wildlife Service And DNR have done that. In companionship and in a much bigger way, the private landowners working with the conservation organizations, you know, I call TNC and DU the big boys because you're national, but local land trusts have stepped in to help fill the role of getting Giving people options of how to do a conservation easement. So what you got is you got a patchwork quilt of protected habitats. There are private lands habitats whose qualities are just incredibly high. And why? Because the landowner has that that ethic to want to, to want it to want it to be that way. Ducks Unlimited in and other conservation if it's if it's wetlands, DU steps in to help them. So it's it's kind of a it's it's so interconnected that it's hard to describe. Um but here again the whole goal is protection of landscape in a conservation method. That's what makes it so cool.
1: Yeah. So the ACE, if my reading is correct, the ACE Basin Project or the Task Force, uh, you can correct me on this. It came about in 1988. Is that right?
3: That is correct. We just celebrated 89. I think was 88 was when it was chartered. Got really rolling about 89. You know, 2019 we celebrated the 30th anniversary of the. Eight, of the space Basin project,
1: and you've been there for just about the entire. Or I guess it would be the entire, uh, the entire thing, right? Yeah,
3: almost. You know, I I drifted away when I was still in the plantation business. It was getting started, and I drifted away for a few years because I got sentenced to our Columbia office for two years. But then I got back down here. You know, as it was. G- Get really getting going. So for over a quarter of a century, I've been right there, you know, right there w- with it. And it's been one heck
1: of a ride, you know. Well, let's let's talk a bit about the scale of the accomplishments. I also want to to emphasize again this, the the pre- protection aspect and the reason we kind of singled out this Ace Basin Partnership Task Force, whichever of these, we, the, you know, the Ace Basin effort uh, in the article that I was referencing earlier is just because of the way the easement that you reference has been used so successfully in that region. There are a number of easement programs. With, these are voluntary easements. All of this conservation work is voluntary. If it's a, you know, it, it's a key key point here, whether it's public land, private lands, all voluntary participation in these programs. But the easement programs are are used widely in the prairies when we're talking about putting perpetual easements on. Uh, on grasslands. And what those easements basically mean is that the landowner, landowner is either paid or they donate the value uh, for, that's equivalent to some, some development right that they're giving up.
3: Most of our early easements, the really big ones, the, the landmark easements like Ted Turner on Hope Plantation, the Donnelly family on Ashapoo and Fenwick Islands and and Mister Lane on Willtown; those were donated easements, pond pond plan. You know, so the, you know, significant, significant
1: gift conservation. Absolutely, and so that's it's a common tool in the in the prairies, but in the it, they're less they're less widespread. Their application is less widespread in migration and wintering areas from a waterfowl standpoint. And the Ace Basin is a notable exception to that.
3: Those big cornerstone easements set the stage and set the example. I think it's a big thing. They set the example for others to follow. And, you know, the, the Donling family is one of the most well-respected families in wetland and waterfowl conservation in the nation. And in, in general, you know, in then. That just, you know, Mr. Mister Donnelly was wide and far-ranging thinking. A lot of people called him the godfather of the H Basin Project and that he sat in the background and made sure what was done was done right. <laughs> and, you, you know, his history with DU, every, everybody, you know, I'm sure you know, but he was one of the people who helped start DU. So it
1: very important. Absolutely. Dean, let's talk a bit about the scale of these accomplishments. Now, we, we've referenced 1988 as sort of a starting point for the formalization of this Ace basin partnership in support of the North American Waterfowl Management Plan, and so that might be a good bookend to use you, uh, you know, in terms of how you inventory all these accomplishments. And uh, I, I know you have some of these rough numbers handy. Just talk to us about the the acres, the dollars. What kind of impact has this partnership brought to that area?
3: Well. When we first started the project, our original goal was to protect 50,000 acres in in a 90,000 acre block and we things took off and just over the course of the years continued to grow and this past year we celebrated our 30th anniversary by protecting over 300,000 acres through conservation easements as the primary tool, you know. And the big thing about the Ace Basin project is, you know, the original focus was on ducks and duck habitat. But it only took three or four years, if that long, for it to turn into landscape scale land protection you know not only the wetlands but the adjacent uplands water, where 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 does protection of water quality start on the uplands and then we we started realizing that we had carved out too small of a piece of the low country to protect because we didn't in, include The all of the river corridors and and the surrounding lands. And so we redrew the boundaries from the original 90,000 acre camel, as we called it, which was basically lands east of 17 or east of 17A into 1.1 million acres and which extended way up inland and it encompassed the swamp lands. Some, some of the, uh, isolated freshwater wetlands, you know, everything goes to the ocean. So protect as much of it as you can. And so well, with a 1.1 1. 1 million acre project there, that's pretty big. When you think about it, we've protected approximately a third of it. Wow. You know, not, not, I, you know, that's, <laughs> it's hard to describe it, you know, yeah. to, to, to come see the Ace Basin in in all of its habitat types, you can't do it in a half a day. You 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 need to take two or three days so you can see you can you can start at one end or the other and follow the flow of the water starting the in the swamplands and the and the where I was this uh, up up in the. Up in the freshwater swamps and follow the flow of the water down to the salt water, and and all the different things that you see, and it's it's pretty amazing, you know. And we continually pick up conservation easements uh, along and along, and it it's it's really fascinating to watch it. Watch it play out. You know the core waterfowl habitat is east of Seventeen in the historical rice field country. That's that's the core wintering, traditional wintering waterfowl habitat, with a little bit on the other side of Seventeen. But the rest of it's pretty spectacular,
1: yeah. too. And I, I imagine it's immensely rewarding for you personally to see the progress, the continued progress that's made under that partnership. Uh, and and that kind of conservation work doesn't happen without financial resources. Talk about uh, that uh, in in a few in a few sentences. What what level of of you know financial investment are we talking about? What's the source of those fundings?
3: Well, you know, you, Naywamp's a plan. The North American Wetland Conservation Act is the checkbook that helps implement the plan. And in the, in the ACE, there has been about $5 million worth of NACA grant funds that have been matched for about, with about $3 million for wetland enhancement and, and some wetland security, mainly purchases of the, the, uh, lands for the Ace Basin National Wildlife Refuge. And those knocker, knocker grants have been used to enhance wetland management on public lands and private lands. You know, it's all about the plumbing and to get those habitats in, in shape where you can effectively manage them.
1: Listeners of the show are going to hear about NACA if they ha- if we haven't already played the episode uh, by now. We'll hear about NACA in the Texas coast as well. Dr. Todd Marandino over there leads the, helps, is one of the people that helps lead the Texas Prairie Welland Project, another private land wetland restoration conservation program and it too gets some of its key funding from the north american wetlands conservation act we'd just like to point that out to all of our listeners because regardless of where we are on the on the north american continent there are north american wetlands conservation act dollars at work to help protect restore and enhance key wetland habitats that support waterfowl populations continentally um so the now, my understanding, Dean, is that there's, you know, again, anytime we're involved in some, one of these big efforts, there are an immense number of partners, an immense number of resources, resources that they all bring to the table. I believe I remember something about the South Carolina Conservation Bank being a somewhat recent development that has had a tremendous impact on resources available for this. Is that right?
3: Right, right. One, one of the things. <laughs> With not, the conservation bank is a, is a really good tool in South Carolina. It's a, it, it, it is what it says it is. It is, it is a banking instrument that provides grants for conservation oriented purposes, whether it's purchasing a piece of property, buying, helping to buy an easement on a piece of property, helping to secure a grant. So what we've got in the mix, in the bank, it takes cash. You know, you always got to have a match. And, you know, the Conservation Bank is a source of cash. Some of our our larger counties have greenbelt funds that they can use. And the third source of match, which is real important, is the value of easements, you know, that can be used to match. So to prove that you are worthy of a NACA grant, to do wetland, to do habitat enhancement, or to to secure an important piece of property, you've got to prove that you, that the property is worthy of that investment, but that the people who are promoting the investment have the financial wherewithal to to meet that match, and that's that's where the South Carolina Conservation Bank comes into play. That's where DU and TNC. And the local land trusts have the value of matches that they can play towards a NACA grant, which has gone a long way a lot of times in, in securing important uh, pieces of property and important enhancement projects. It's it's a bunch of pots of money to get the job done. You know, like you got to have a lot of partners and you got to have a lot of pots of money.
1: That's exactly right. And and I've talked a lot about and promoted the, the importance of, of easements and the perpetual protection of properties in the, in the Ace Basin. But it's not just that. There's a lot of, of wetland restoration. There's a lot of wetland enhancement activities that also occur through these projects, right?
3: Right. You know, just about, you know, when I was with DNR, we worked closely with DU on two major projects. Two major projects at Bear Island Wildlife Management area, putting, you know, putting together, upgrading our water delivery systems, bringing things that were, that needed enhancing into line. And, you know, the combination of having the expertise of DU's engineering staff and grant writing capabilities. In helping us improve the habitat management capabilities on state, federal, and private lands it has gone a long way in the ace to, to, to elevate our ability to effectively, effectively manage our, our wetland habitats.
1: Uh, Dean, I thank you for all the work that you've done through the various positions that you've had uh, over the course of your career, and and perhaps you're continuing to to serve some of those functions now. I'm not exactly sure what all your uh, your daily activities are as a as a consult a wildlife consultant, consulting wildlife biologist. Uh, but nevertheless, I thank you for that. I mentioned earlier that I have not spent much time in, uh, in in coastal in the in the South Atlantic coastal South Carolina. I've been there a few times, but for any of our Listeners that may be in that same uh, in that same boat with me, are, are there any suggestions, any advice that you can give people on on how to visit, how to see some of these important areas?
3: Well, don't
1: come in August. Oh. <laughs> Rule number one. <laughs> Great.
3: <laughs> no, actually, y- you know, probably the best time to come in and really enjoy the Ace Basin is. February, March, April through early May i i I love February and March because you're in the transition of seasons you know you, you, you waterfowl are are getting ready to migrate they' the males are in breeding plumage. everybody's beautiful you know they're out and about. You can get around. You know, we've got 50,000 acres of public land in the Ace Basin to come visit. So it's not a half-a-day trip. Yeah. Um, and, y- you know, y- y- that is a great time to come. You've got shorebird migration beginning. The bald eagles are around. You get a little bit later in the spring, and the waterfowl, of course, are leaving in early March. But then you got your spring migrants of warblers and shorebirds And and as you roll into March and spring is springing, you know Charleston is pretty, Savannah's pretty, Buford's pretty. Um, So that that is a really good season to come. Um, Early in if in the fall, you've got you know our waterfowl populations really don't start. Peaking a lot until November and December, a little bit harder to get on places to see them. Um, But if you're a saltwater fisherman, October and November are really good. So there's never there's never a bad time to be here. But you know the summertime and hurricane season are not the best.
1: Yeah, that's right. There's some added wild cards there that you want to try to avoid if you can. I understand that. Living in Louisiana for for a number of years, I get that completely. What are what are some of the uh, public public areas there? I'm assuming you've got some state WMAs as well as some national wildlife refuges? We've got
3: three major public um, South Carolina SCDNR managed properties. Dolly and Bear Island, which are 10 miles apart, that's 20,000 acres sandwiched together. That's the heart of the ace. You've got 5,000 acres of managed wetlands a lot of habitat diversity. You've got uplands, the whole shmeal. Um, nearby is is the Ace Basin, NWR, which has units on the Edisto and the Cumbie. Um, and then another great management area, which is totally different, but is Botany Bay WMA down close to Edisto Beach. And it is subtropical. Um, it gets shorebirds and wading birds and some waterfowl. I mean, I've seen pictures of people who see, who saw long tailed ducks in the saltwater impoundment down there, which, you know, kind of a jump back moment. Yeah. Um And, and so there, you know, a lot to do for people who, you know, easy day trips from Charleston or Beaufort or nearby Walterburg. So there's a lot to do. And, um, good time to come any t- you know early spring is a good time to come
1: i encourage people to put that on their list of, of destinations you know w- certainly once we all get back up and are able to move around the country and go to places that we want to go i would encourage you to put that one on your list uh, the ace basin of coastal south carolina dean i want to thank you uh, immensely for taking the time to share with us your knowledge your expertise and history of that region any final words from you that you want to leave the listeners with with respect to this uh, this longstanding partnership
3: well, you know, conservation is done by one acre at a time and you just got to keep working at it. <laughs> that's that's what I think.
1: Yeah, that tr- true words have never been spoken. It's absolutely right. And and it does take it takes time, dedication. The A Space and Partnership, the A Space and Program, um, the task force all the great work that they've that they've done this I think I don't think it's any stretch to say that this is a flagship program. Uh, in the South Atlantic region. And all of the accomplishments that have been made over the years are a testament to the courage, the passion of the people in that region. Uh, and yet another example of, I, I think we could say the inspirational qualities of natural resources conservation. It gives people motivation. It, it gives people uh, inspiration to do good things and leave a lasting legacy for those that come behind us. And so, Dean, again, thank you for all your work in that. And thank you for joining us on the show show
3: my pleasure
1: a special thanks to our guest on today's show dean harrigal a consulting wildlife biologist uh, for, with folkland management and retired employee of south carolina dnr he shared with us a lot of his expertise experience uh, and involvement in a lot of the important wetland conservation work that's occurred in the ace basin of south carolina As always, we thank our producer, Clay Baird, for the great work that he does editing these podcasts and serving them up to you, the listeners. And, of course, the listeners, you're the most important part of this effort. We thank you for spending your time with us, and we thank you for your support, passion, and commitment to wetlands and waterfowl conservation.